Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today, I would like to welcome Dr. Marcia Mikulak. She is Professor Emerita of Anthropology at the University of North Dakota in the Department of Anthropology. Her curriculum vitae is extremely impressive, to say the least. She is here today to talk about how language influences our identity. Thank you for being here today. How are you? Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? I am doing splendidly. Thank you. I would like to start by asking you to give us a little bit about your history. How did you become interested to study words, language? Well, I'm a cultural anthropologist, and uh, prior to that, very briefly, a little background. I, I grew up in Brazil until I was about eight, and then came to the United States. I was a very young student of music, and so by the age of three, I began uh, learning piano. My mother was a, a pianist, concert pianist. And so I eventually went to the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and earned my bachelor's in music performance there. And then at Mills College, earned a master of fine arts there. And I met many composers and I ended up recording their music. And music is a nonverbal language, uh, but it is a language. And it trained me to think and feel interestingly enough, I don't know if I'm just unique, but I don't think so. I think others have this experience that uh, when I think, I think in form and shape. So like gestures, um, like a dancer, uh, because music is all about tone and shape and form and gesture and sensation and feeling. And um, language does that language. You know, if you think about metaphors, it's trying to express Uh, what we feel in a very short form, like you dirty dog, or or, um, you're an angel, you know, or whatever it is, we use uh, terms that describe feelings. And so language is a very expressive medium that humans use to talk about everything. And embedded in language are not just words, that have certain specific meanings, but embedded in language is um, metaphorical meaning. That is explicit, implicitly learned. And uh, we'll go, for example, to a doctor, and we think nothing of being asked to take our clothes off and put on a robe. Where else would we do that except at home? And then we would be examined in ways that we would never let another person examine us. Um, But that's because of language and also the tradition and history of culture in our society Mm. that puts a great deal of emphasis and power on the doctor, that is, the brotherhood of medicine. So um, we don't think about most of this. We do it automatically, tacitly. And that's what began to interest me from music, uh, also in working with children and how they learn and perceive and grow. 
Um, that led me to go to um, Africa. And then after Africa, I was, in, I was in Zimbabwe and then Mali doing research on children and learning. And then I ended up getting my doctorate in uh, cultural anthropology. It's a broad field and uh, gave me a lot of moving room. <laughs> and I could um, sort of bring together all that I had done in music and in my life with, in working with children and uh, a lot of the curiosity that I had about what is it to be human and how do we learn as human beings. Mm. So can you clarify a little bit of terminology for us? What is the difference between a cultural anthropologist versus a linguistic anthropologist? Okay, a cultural anthropologist is a very good question. Um, there's four subfields in anthropology, traditional subfields. There's uh, biological anthro, which looks at uh, evolution. There's and and the study of of evolution over time, you know, in humans, and we often study primates and so forth and so on. Um, then there's uh, cultural anthropology, which is looking at living societies today. Mm. That is ourselves as well as any other society, and we immerse ourselves in this, the society that we're studying. And we, at the same time, study ourselves in that society and how we're responding. So it's a, it's a dialogue uh, between one culture and another, or one person and another, trying to understand broader meanings in cultures. And then there's uh, archaeology, which is prehistory, and that's pre-linguistic, uh, that is pre-language, written language. Um, so we look at ancient history, um, and it also helps us to understand current uh, day uh, cultures and how we came to be who we are. And uh, then, see, I've gotten biology, cultural, archaeology, and then linguistic. And linguistic anthropology does not look at the origin of words as uh, phonemes. You know, it doesn't look at the structure of language as much as it does. It studies it briefly. But it mostly looks at meaning and the meaning in words uh, and how we understand uh, ourselves. So it's a very uh, self-exploratory uh, study. And then it's also an exploration of society, societies in general. Now, societies are very specific. There's the Northwest, the Southwest, the East, the West. The, you know. So we're looking, when we look at ourselves in the United States, I can't say, well, I want to study meaning and language in the United States. I have to say exactly what city, where, and, you know, what groups of people, ethnicities, ages. So it, it, can, it, it must be very specific. Let's continue diving in. How does language influence our identity? That's a huge topic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I can provide you with a list of readings for uh, the audience. Uh, when I and think I'll, of I'll be sure to post those in the show notes. Okay, great. When I think of myself as a female, I have embedded in that word without my knowledge, an entire universe of gender. So I will think of myself as a female, a woman uh, of a certain age, of a certain ethnicity, uh, who 
has particular kinds of tastes and values. And if I think about it, I have to ask myself, where do those values come from? And they come from specific locations, social classes. Mm -hmm. As a white woman, I learned uh, a very specific way of being. And I learned that being white gave me certain privileges. So how does that relate to language? There are very simplistic ways to discuss this. For example, if I talk about just colors and I say orange, some people will like orange and not like orange. If I say black, some people will like black, to wear black, the color black, Mm -hmm. and others will not. We will assume that black makes you look thinner if you wear dark clothes. And we assume that because in our culture, having certain body types uh, tends, there's a a sort of norm that people try to always match, Mm -hmm. whether we're aware of it or not, whether it's healthy or not, whether it's, you know, good for us or not. So I will wear black to maybe look thinner. But then if I think about black in the context of identity, in terms of my skin color, how I look at my skin color as a white woman varies across social class as well, but it also varies very much in terms of how a black woman would see themselves in comparison to white and black. And these are learned perceptions and the words that go along with describing them carry power, carry self-identity, carry a sense of pride, carry a variety of things. And every single aspect of language does that. So words have tremendous power. And we words pull, have, and, but it's up to us to give those words power and take away yes. that power as well. Yes, and social movements do that. Slowly, social movements end up taking what has been pejorative or negative Mm -hmm. and turning uh, a particular word into um, a a type of metaphor that brings a, uh, that forces the negativity, the notion of that negativity back out Mm -hmm. onto society and then says, we are proud. We are not negative about ourselves. We are fighting for social justice and equality rather than competition and superiority. And so social movements are really based on words. The slogans that we say uh, really embody the power that we're trying to embody ourselves and to remove power from certain groups of people such that we can uh, level a playing field and create a sense of unity amongst ourselves, and equality. So the United States has a very long history of um, race and racism. And we have built our society on the notion of racial hierarchies. Mm -hmm. While South America, historically, we thought, as social scientists, South America was based on social class, not on race. But we're coming to find out, of course, that it is based on race and it has all of its, uh, you know, inheritance of 
power and lack of power, subjectivity, all of these, these aspects of identity um, have, are linked to history. And in the United States, our history of slavery, our history of conquering a land that was not ours in the first place, but assuming that we had the right through papal bulls to take land that was not ours and the people who we found there were less than us. So it's a complicated history that unfortunately many of us in this country don't know, but it creates a linguistic history that comes with it of subjectivity, of being um, inferior or superior, depending on the color of your skin and the phenotypes. For example, in Brazil, if a woman has very straight hair and she is very dark complected, but she has the phenotypes that appear more Western European, mm. smaller nose, thinner lips. Mm-hmm. She's okay. And my curly hair is not necessarily a good thing over there because white people are supposed to be really thin, straight hair, thin nose, da da da, you know. What gives particular words their power, and how can that power change with time? It's every, every culture gives uh, a power to language in different ways. So um, historically, we have always thought that power was held in the 1919, for example. Power was held within the hands of males, that is men, the male gender. And so all the words that came with uh, property ownership, and intellectuality and smartness and attractiveness were centered around men in a very particular way. Women had another kind of place in the world based on language, and that was that women were not intellectual. They didn't have the equipment to go to universities and get degrees and become lawyers. They didn't really have choice over their bodies or reproduction. They were to be attractive, silent, complacent, agreeable, mm-hmm. not, to, not to be disagreeable. Mm-hmm. And hence today we have the word persistent and nasty woman, right? To talk <laughs> about women who break that habit and that pattern, we're still dealing with that. And so the notion of what constitutes an attractive woman includes not only her physical body, historically, but also her emotional and social uh, consciousness of who she's supposed to be Mm. in in everyday society. So it's really about establishing status, the words that we use. That's why language is powerful, because it creates status, it creates hierarchy, it creates position, positionality, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's also how we barter and bargain with people. I mean, every aspect of our lives put in this context is, um, is, 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 a, is a kind of competition. It is political between husband and wife, between mother and child and Mm. father and child. And, Mm. you know, we're always negotiating, navigating, and we're using language to do that.
So we also have a responsibility to ourselves to decide what power language has over us and how we comport ourselves as well. So my question is, can the power of language affect how we see ourselves and portray ourselves and then act in the world? And can that limit our potential? Absolutely. It, it is our responsibility um, and our choice to be able to comprehend the power of language. But it requires um, it, it, meaning to understand the power of language requires study and it requires guidance to understand how to think about language. Mm. You and I are like a fish in water. All of us are. We're in our culture, swimming around in it. And then we only know that we're in a culture when we're pulled out of it. Then we don't have the oxygen to breathe, you know? And so we realize, oh my God, uh, gee, you know, so being pulled out of your culture and is what education should be. It should lift you out so you can become neutral to observe and observe how do you observe? How do you learn to see yourself acting? It's called subjectivity. And how do you become subjective in watching the world without making a decision? So if you watch how people treat you as a faculty member, sitting in faculty meetings with male faculty and being interrupted over and over and over again is an act of observation, okay? That act of observation allows me to see how I am being treated according to language and according to um, position and according to hierarchy and according to just being a human being and gender, okay, all those things. I'm not going to react. I'm not going to be reactive. I'm going to watch it. As I watch it, I begin to see unfolding a series of patterned behaviors. And those patterned behaviors, if I know how to look, are about power, position, um, feeling and status, feeling threatened by a woman who is supposed to be in a lower status. Or that uh, sometimes my remarks in a faculty meeting um, are not appropriate or don't, don't have any real significance. There's also all of those possibilities. So the point is, in order to learn about language and its power and to take it back, you first have to see what power is and how language embodies the power. There's a saying that says, if you think education is expensive, consider the cost of ignorance. And that's a very, very powerful quote to me because... Yes, it is. If I'm ignorant of how I'm reacting and why I'm reacting the way I am, um, I'm going to have a cost. I'm going to have to pay something for that, you know, either emotionally, intellectually, financially, or whatever. Mm. And so I do think that we need to be able to step back with some guidance and learn how to observe which is what cultural anthropology is all about. And it sounds like meditation. It sounds like it's a like mother. Meditation. It's exactly. It's becoming the observer. Exactly. One of the reasons I have two examples that came to mind when you were talking just now, one of them 
is the reason that I wanted to have you on the spark, the inspiration that had me seek you out was the word senior. I had two two separate interactions with the word senior with two women in my life. One of them was very offended by the word. She associates senior with something very negative. The other woman in my life embraces the word senior, loves all of the benefits that come with being senior. So I found that extremely fascinating. And I just wondered how that might have each woman interact with her world. And the second example, while you were talking about being in the room with men in a professional setting, I just had a car buying episode with my husband over the weekend. This is multiple times we've bought purchased cars. And each time I'm just the wife. They don't want me to put my signature on the documents. We actually have to keep insisting she is a coal buyer or this is going to be her car primarily, but they're not talking to me. It's really fascinating dynamic to watch. Yes. And I've been in that situation. I I think we could each talk to many women uh, and get a similar response in fact, that, that has happened to me, and I've insisted that, no, I am the one who's buying this car. My name goes on the document, blah, 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 blah. There's also a difference, I think, too, in um, women of color as opposed to white women. They're still treated differently, and it's really disturbing. And the hierarchy still puts, unfortunately, I think, and I could be wrong, uh, white women in a slightly higher you know, position. So you treat them a little differently. Um, As going back to the two women who one loved the being a senior and the other didn't, can I ask you, was there an ethnicity difference? Yes. The one who loves it is African-American. The one who does not is Caucasian. Exactly. And uh, white women have been trained to look and act and be a particular kind of stereotype. Um, one of the things that white women obsess over more than, than uh, African-American women is body type and whether we're thin and, you know, our personality comes out of that as opposed to being a person. And I'm, I'm speaking generically. I'm not speaking all women. I'm speaking anecdotally and also generically. I think a lot of white women would agree with me. A lot would disagree with me too. Um, there's a lot of studies that show that black women have a much better uh, body image than white women and have a sense of themselves uh, in, in a way that white women don't. And there, we could, that's a whole nother discussion. I asked that because um, I also think that in African-American communities, there's more of a sociocentric notion of community rather than an egocentric notion of self. And ego tends to have a negative uh, connotation, but it doesn't in anthropology and cultural anthropology. It just means that um, the, the emphasis of being, an ind- of being a person is on the individual and what I do in terms of my own efforts without anybody else. That's how we think of it, or tend to think of it. Mm-hmm. And that we're a meritocracy and I can raise myself up out of my boots and become mm-hmm. whatever I want to become, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the African-American community and in Latin American, Iberian Peninsula, um, there's more of an 
sociocentric view, and that is that you are your community. You are not just you as an mm. individual, mm. and your entire self-worth and value isn't about how much you succeed and, um, and how much status you, you earn. For example, this is just simple. Every day walking on the street and you meet somebody that, you know, you haven't seen in a while and they say, Oi, mas, yeah. <laughs> Hi, tudo bem, how are you? Você está bem? Yes, see, yes, I'm very good, thank you. And then they say, ah, como está sua mãe? How's your mother? E o seu pai? Your father. Irmão, irmã, your brother, your sister. Um, how about your aunt, you know, your uncle? Oh, what's going on with the family? They don't ask you like we do here. Hi, Marcia, what are you up to? What have you been doing? Did you find a job? Oh, okay. Oh, that kind of job. Oh, okay. <laughs> have you published more <laughs> as an academic? How many articles did you get out this, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's a very, you know, we are an egocentric society. We are a competitive society. We are a capitalist society whose focus is on how much can I continue to rise economically and in my social status. And in, in Brazil, there's that too. People have to earn money and eat and all that. But the most important thing is your community, which is your family and extended family, and then the friends of your extended family. So this is a very lovely example you've just given as to how language and culture can influence one another. Absolutely. And they're, they're, you know, it's like convex, concave. You can't have concave without having convex. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You put on a glove, you have the inside of the glove and the outside of the glove. You can't, mm -hmm. they're not separate. So culture is, is inseparable mm -hmm. from science, from how we do science, from how we think about body and self and health and wellness and illness. They're all intertwined. For example, in health, we'll say I have a heart. I, 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 my father had a heart attack. Yes. I'm fighting off a cold. Yes. I'm beating cancer. I'm beating cancer. Yeah. Um, cancer is eating me alive. Mm -hmm. Whatever. We use these metaphorical domains of attack and, um, and violence towards the physical body to mm -hmm. describe illness. Mm -hmm. In most indigenous cultures, illness is seen as being out of step with everything in your life that is your community your the, the environment and nature around you so in native american diabetes for example you want people to be if they're going to traditional doctors to be in compliance that means they have to see the doctor every so often they have to get their blood sugars tested almost every day they have to go in for you know various other types of exams and they're told that if you don't you're going to die because diabetes doesn't ever go away And in the Native American community, nobody will talk about diabetes because it means they must have done something so bad mm. it cannot be cured or put brought back into balance. That took medical professionals in the United States a lot of time to figure out. And by the time, you know, there have been some great programs, Strong in Body and Spirit, that really tried to look at traditional uh, ways of seeing the body, even all of its organs, and how diabetes works, and uh, to work with, with uh, Native American healers. 
Uh, it's been really hard to do that because of the mistrust that came about over decades of colonization. Sure. You know, but their vision of health is coming back into balance. And they have specific traditional rituals and processes and he- healing uh, uh, practices that actually work that help them. I mean, consider the fact that science, in order to do clinical trials, has to have a hypothesis. And that hypothesis is based on how you think about particular types of diseases and that how we think about them in the laboratory and how we observe them. And that practice of observation is learned and it's deeply entwined with our cultural beliefs. Science is not objective. Science creates the actual technologies that look for what we are looking for. So science in some areas is beginning to accept this, um, particularly in, say, medical anthropology or some biological anthropologists uh, are open enough to understand that, well, you know, Western European biological medicine and positivism is not the beginning and end all of the discovery of health and wellness, that we have a great deal to learn about mind-body connections and from indigenous peoples across the world. We keep coming back to this idea of it's a way to separate ourselves. It's a way to raise status. It's a, it's a way to show power. Yeah, power. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's powerful to be a full professor. Mm-hmm. It's powerful to be a doctor. It's powerful to be a neurosurgeon. And there's nothing wrong with being those things, except that what happens is we set up these walls of division between everyday people, which I am, <laughs> and you are, mm-hmm. and the academics and we can only come together if we drop that facade of superiority and it is hard to do as a as a full professor i'm now an emerita and which means i'm retired with a with a honorary status um i want everybody to know that (laughs) i have an honorary status Uh, and that's hard to get over. You know, it becomes our identity. It so becomes. Can you say a little bit more about that? So the fact yes. that you, you're a human being, and yes, you you want people to know this. Why? Okay, and this goes back to elderly and to being um, a senior. Um, I'm 70 years old, and I may not look it. Some people say I don't. Uh, it doesn't matter. I am, and I just retired. That's an interesting phrase too, that retired. you don't look at, no, not the retired. Oh, you don't look at, don't yeah. look at, so that's another almost subtle way of Thank you. being powerful. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. That is exactly right. And this stuff is so hidden. It's, it's, it's obvious, but it's hidden unless we're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you can start to pay attention. Um, so, so again, as I retire in the United States, what happens to people who retire? Where do they go? 
often they volunteer, often they, you know, they're in their community, they kind of hang out. It's the golden years. You don't have to work. You don't have to contribute. You don't have to do anything. You can just be. Okay. <laughs> well, who wants to just be? You know, I mean, I'm not against mindfulness. I want to just be too, but that is a very active state. And retirement is a very passive state and mm. live in a society that throws away elderlies, you know, absolutely don't really have much value. Put, put us in a home and then eventually we'll just be gone. And mm-hmm. you know, the worst you're going to have to do is figure out how to bury us. But <laughs> the, the notion of being an elderly person is not a, a place of status in the United States. Now, in Brazil, it is a high status. In Africa, it is highest of all. When I've been in Mali, when I've been in, in Zimbabwe, you know, they, they actually value elders, people at Native Americans and indigenous populations around the world, mm-hmm. hold elders in high esteem. That is not the case. Mm-hmm. That's how I grew up. My, my parents are Haitian immigrants. There you go. White women and I think white people in general, depending, and I have to say this over and over again on their social class, and I mean economic status. There. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And social class doesn't necessarily mean just that. A social class can also, if it's an economic status, with, e- with economic mobility and um, fluidity comes a whole sense of self in and of itself. And so you are now free to spend your money and have fun and go wherever you want. That's never been my mission in life. And for me personally, um, I don't want to just have fun. I want to continue to make a contribution and to learn until I'm, I, I die. That's my, my goal. So it depends, again, on, on gender. For my gender, to be a woman, to have earned full professorship, to have done what I've done in my life is still considered, wow. It can be, it, it's a wall between myself and others sometimes. And it's a wall in terms of language and thinking and trying to have conversations on an everyday level with many people who don't think deeply about life. I don't know if you find that to be true. I was just having a conversation with someone earlier, and I don't know if I'm really answering your question very well, but I was saying that I find it hard to do small talk. It is very hard. I'm extremely uncomfortable in superficial situations. It's not necessarily that I don't like parties or social situations because of social anxiety or because there are too many people. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But what makes me uncomfortable is the level of interaction in those situations or lack thereof. I'm not good with how are you? and a simple, very superficial answer or just discussing the weather or whatever really... Or an opinion. Yeah, subject. I'm a person who really wants to dive in. I want to have a meaningful conversation. Some of the friends that I have, we call ourselves lifelong learners. And if you make that your posture then you act accordingly, right? That's the power of that language. That, that so is I pride absolutely myself. right. I totally yes. pride myself on being 
a lifelong learner and part of that. And I'm always trying to investigate what does that mean? It's not just memorizing information. It's actually being curious, being mentally flexible, being open to other opinions, having empathy. There's all these things that, and I'm invested in that. So yeah. well, there you go. That's, that's part of identity. And that what you just described is using language and using language to describe a kind of identity that is unique to you. And I will say for me, everyday discourse as an academic is hard. Everyday sort of popular discussions Mm -hmm. because people essentially have learned, all of us learned very early to give our opinions and not to ask questions. Oh, that's spot on. And so I always have told my students, you are not learning anything until you feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Because before that, if you're feeling, oh, this is great, you know, yep, 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 it's, I'm agreeing with everything I already know. And so that's to go back to where we started being able to hover above who we, what we think we know, what we like and what we don't like, what makes us mad or happy, the things that we have aversion towards or the things that we have a passion for, if we can hover above them and observe, watch, which means not speaking all the time, mm. but listening and watching and letting awareness itself, and that's another discussion, whatever that is, awareness, as opposed to brain and mind and thought and all that stuff. Something new arises. And we really begin to experience our, full, our, our, our potential. That is what, that is an awareness that is not subjectified. It is not objectified. It is simply an awareness. And that's really hard for Americans, I think, to understand. And it takes, it's a kind of, it's mindfulness and it's, it takes practice, a constant practice. And in, in my classes with my students, their job was to achieve that state of neutrality where they could discuss in various ways, take different positions, have different feelings And then something after a while begins to arise. It's very different than either black or white cognitive dissonance. Dichotomous, yeah. Yeah. And one last thing is that language is really, in my experience, anecdotally, difficult to use intuitively. And what I mean by that is if you have been observing and you're in the process of observing, you start to, I start to feel, I begin to be, I become aware of a variety of things I'm not aware of if I'm always thinking and waiting to react. So that place is intuitive, is somehow the In my experience, the process of getting uncomfortable 
having new things arise, allowing things to arise, and getting a sensation of a bigger picture. And that bigger picture then eventually will allow you to speak about it. But that's what I meant about language, because language can be tyrannical and is tyrannical. We can see it today. We see it politically. We see it in every single candidate on either side trying to create a particular worldview that they think we they think that we want that we think that we want and instead of actually having a different process that allows us to dialogue about that well it's a complicated very very complicated this has been an incredibly interesting conversation i will say thank you very much for being here my final question to you is what is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy my personal experience with health as opposed to illness is something that's evolving <laughs> and i'm not trying to get out of the question um it's i have not been, an easy question no it isn't i have been ill and uh and as a kid i had polio as i get older i see health and illness is not separate hmm. and that the aversion of one and the acceptance of the other is problematic. Every once in a while, something on Facebook pops up that's really profound. And someone told a story about an old woman who is going to be put into a nursing home. And they, she was the nicest person they'd ever met. And they'd chosen a room for her. And they were telling her that it was going to be okay. And the woman says, well, don't worry. I already like the room. And the person says, but you haven't seen it. And she said, well, that doesn't matter. I've decided to like it. And it's the same thing about illness, Mm. that pain we know can be mitigated by, if you just take your mind and you're in pain and you focus on some other part of your body that is not in pain. All I'm saying is that it's an attitude. It's where we place our mind. And, And that's not easy. And I'm not saying you can ever overcome pain Uh, that you shouldn't take pain medications. Uh, I just think that our attitude about growing older, about being a woman or a man or any gender in between, and by the way, every, most every other society other than Western European societies have a place for people of a variety of gender identities. We are the odd ones out. So all of, all of, Life is really a matter of perspective and illness. And I think doctors would tell us this. There are some patients who are amazing and they are told they're going to die and and they're going to, and they say, I'm going to have a, I'm going to live my life. And they live longer if that's the goal, you know, but I don't think it should be our goal to live long. I think our goal should be to live full with an open mind that's constantly questioning and having insight. Thank you very, very much for being here. I very much appreciate your time and I have learned a lot. Well, so have I. Thank you. (laughs) It's always good to speak with you. Rather than the usual mind, body, spirit tip, here are my conclusions from this episode. Words have power because we give it to them. Therefore, 
we have the agency to change their meaning. We start by noticing what we are saying, how we are processing the power of language in our lives, and how words impact the people around us. That takes empathy. So I would like to have a dialogue with you about the power of words. Please follow the prompts on all of my social media channels, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Look for YogiMD and let's chat. Thanks for being here. See you next time. 